Soon democracy will come. And so, I also believe China ought to be in the World Trade Organization. I also believe that Taiwan ought to be in the World Trade Organization. But let me make this clear to you and to the Chinese. I will enforce the Taiwan relations law if I'm the president. If the Chinese get aggressive with the Taiwanese, we'll help them defend themselves. Bauer then says, Governor, we would have never made the argument that you just made if we were talking about Nazi Germany. Is there no atrocity that you can think of? The labor camps doubling in their slave labor? A bigger crackdown? More priests disappearing in the middle of the night? Is there anything that would tell you to put trade on the back burner? Bush responds to Bauer. Gary, I agree with you that forced abortion is abhorrent, and I agree with you when leaders try to snuff out religion. But I think if we turn our back on China and isolate China, things will just get worse. Imagine if the Internet took hold in China. Imagine how freedom would spread. In my earlier answer, I said our greatest export to the world has been, is, and always will be, the incredible freedom we understand in America. And that's why it's important for us to trade with China, to encourage the growth of an entrepreneurial class. It gets that taste of freedom. It gets that breath of freedom in the marketplace. Taken together, the sound bites from these two candidates and their town hall answers paint a more complete picture of their positions than either response alone. There's obvious merit in paying attention to both. But if time is of the essence, Jackson's CNN report can serve as a telegraphic substitute for the town hall exchange. The reason is simple. Whereas candidates take time to get to the point, Jackson has cut to the chase. In boiling their positions down to essentials, he has confirmed that sound bites can be substantive, that there's nothing inherently vacuous about brief candidate statements, and that his investment in finding these core statements has made it possible for us to learn in less than three minutes what otherwise would have taken an hour and a half. Sound bites can be superficial or substantive. Substantive sound bites are the stuff of which the best news stories are made. If that's the case, why is the brevity of candidate statements in news taken as prima facie evidence that the discourse of democracy has decayed? What accounts for the casual assumption that a soundbite is by definition superficial? My theory goes like this. Someone created a neutral word to describe the selection of a brief section of a candidate's speech for a newscast. Soundbite. Someone else, someone who had forgotten that, I love you, will you marry me, it's a healthy baby girl, I will go to Korea, ask not what your country can do for you, and we have nothing to fear but fear itself, meet the definition of soundbites, appropriated the word to describe a superficial crafted candidate statement designed to be excerpted into news. If asked to use the word in a sentence, a student might now write, that's a good soundbite, but where's the substance? Soundbite came to function as a synonym for superficial. Other phrases, such as negative ad or negative campaign, have been so variously defined as to be meaningless. Like a soundbite, a negative campaign is presumed to be bad for democracy. This is an instance of what rhetorical critic Kenneth Burke meant when he noted that language does our thinking for us. The thinking done by soundbite and negative campaigning leads reformers to call for longer soundbites, unmindful that length and substance are not synonyms, and for less negativity, apparently unaware that, without attack, we would lack the information needed to differentiate the candidates. I have been as guilty of this as others. Misapplied concepts are not the only problem. 
Listen to the pundits during a campaign, and you will hear suspect assumptions treated as dogma. They include such truisms as, attack is bad for the public. Attack drives voters from the polls. Debates are boring. There's nothing to be learned from paying attention to debates, and politicians break most of their campaign promises. If such notions are the scaffolding on which the indictment of the discourse of politics is built, the structure is shaky. It is often difficult to know whether a book is worth reading or listening to, particularly a book whose title is an unabashed provocation. How, after all, do I know what you know about politics? And even if I could read your mind, your mail, your magazines, and your ballot, by what breach of strategic sense would I want to announce to the world or to you that you are wrong? Of course, I don't know that you're personally wrong. What I do know is that many of the students in my classes, friends in the neighborhood, and reporters on the phone make assumptions about the way U.S. politics works that just don't change.